Welcome to Fat Guy, Jack Guy. I'm Steph Rubino. And I'm Brendan Walsh. And today we want you to crack open your favorite brewski with us. But before we do that, here's a little message for you. Please become a patron of Fat Guy, Jack Guy by going to patreon.com backslash fatguyjackguy. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us become full-time grifters and uh, live the extravagant life of professional podcasters. That's right. Enjoy the show. Fat Guy, Jack Guy. I turned 21 in December 2008. By the time I was legally allowed to consume alcohol in the United States, I had, if you can believe it, already consumed quite a few beers. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Illegally? I, w- I had illegally consumed alcohol. <laughs> you broke the law? In Between the years of oh, 2004 so wild, to 2008, man. I know. Oof. I'm a wanted man. <laughs> I was a rambunctious and obnoxious college student with an unreasonably active social life. My life and the lives of all my peers were defined by the night's beverage. You can probably relate to that. Yeah, as you know, I unfortunately do. Yes. (laughs) Wednesday, for instance, was a pitcher and five shots at the rail for $5. Mm -hmm. A drink special that most certainly could kill (laughs) any normal person. Thursday. totally reasonable. Yeah, reasonable and, guys, (laughs) pre-inflation, it was easy Yeah, we were living large back then, actually. Thursday was karaoke at the Fox and $2 beers. Friday was a 40 ounce of Old English and Four Loco pre-gaming before you went to the bars. Yes. Saturday was some sort of theme party, usually involving a keg of Natty Light and poorly assembled <laughs> thrifted costumes. We some all Sundays, lived the same lives. Yeah, we did. We, we all <laughs> were doing the same shit. Some Sundays we had an organically formed tradition called Seersucker Beater Beer Sunday. <laughs> Where my friends and I would each purchase a six-pack of craft beer, wear seersucker shorts and sleeveless shirts, and drink the craft brews that we had purchased. This always culminated in a sloppy dance party and sometimes talking down a shirtless friend from running to his girlfriend's <laughs> apartment to break up with her. <laughs> we all live the same life. I know. You guys have heard this old tale before. Listen, this sounds a lot like alcohol abuse. And... It was. Okay? <laughs> We're just admitting it. It's, it's what we, we did. We abused alcohol. <laughs> it was the late aughts. The, re- the recession was like just peaking. Okay? This was 2008, 2009. We weren't scared yet. We did not care much about this terrifying future that we were graduating into, so we decided to drink quite a bit. <laughs> Something interesting happened when I turned 21, though the possibilities for our beverages seemed to multiply. We weren't limited to the slim pickings provided by the corner stores that didn't mind our fake IDs. We no longer had to hand cash to an older friend and (laughs) hope they got something good. We could walk into stores without fear and get these strange concoctions once limited to the beer fridges of our dads. In the late aughts, the oddity of non-macro beers was replaced by shelves stocked with cool-looking bottles from places that sounded really hip. (laughs) Bottles had fun art and packaging, detailed the narratives of scrappy brewers, 
who obsessed over ingredients and ancient techniques that Americans had long forgotten. When I was 16, I had my first craft beer. It was a Sam Adams Boston <laughs> lager, which at the time was considered a very worthy microbrew. Yeah. This was like the one that ushered in the boom that we're going to talk about today. It, all. it didn't taste like the Budweiser's my dad and uncle's housed at the beach or even the Guinnesses I got to pour for my dad into his special Guinness glass. <laughs> in 2004, a Sam Adams was the height of craft luxury for some of us. Then, my friends snagged a couple shipyard IPAs mm, from classic. their parents' fridges and we drank them by a fire in awe of the adulty taste. It was fascinatingly bitter, unapologetically alcoholic in a way that the bush lights we'd had previously <laughs> failed to be. Like you knew bush light had alcohol in it, but it wasn't really like that. You're literally comparing apples and oranges yes. right now. <laughs> but hey, it's all beer, they, right? They're beer, but they're like not <laughs> even not, the, same not the same thing. <laughs> Craft beer seemed to come out of nowhere. And by the time I was in my early 20s, I made the leap to beer obsession. Yeah. Remember, folks, we're talking about 2003 to 2013, the normalist decade that ever was talked about on yep. any sort of podcast. And this is a time period in which craft beer became the obsession of many people like me. Yeah, and me. Most people of my demographic were doing <laughs> the exact same thing. And my demographic is uh, elder white guy millennials. <laughs> and, you know, I guess I Steph. am. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I am an elder you know, white guy. Yeah, millennial. you're an elder white guy. Millennial I just have too. to embrace it. Suddenly, these kids who survived on solo cups of the cheapest possible swill couldn't stomach something without intense hops or funky <laughs> Belgian yeast. Sometimes in my senior year of college, we'd bring our own six packs of local craft beer mm. to keg parties. Rather than hide behind a big old red plastic solo cup, we'd proudly chug glass bottles of bitter beer. It was our status as mature college students. <laughs> no longer would that trash that all these children were drinking suffice. Sure, yeah, we'd do a keg stand later. But look at us now, After all fancy. Drunk, yeah, right? we, you know, we're yeah. drinking our craft beers. Yeah, we'll do a little beer bong. That was something that but we like certainly after. said to each other, like, man, I need to drink at least six craft beers before I can start having that <laughs> disgusting keg beer. <laughs> then I can really start drinking. <laughs> Even though you're already drunk from the six pack, because everything is like 9% alcohol. Yeah, so that's what you like drunkened yourself yeah. enough to stomach, to stomach the trash. Stomach, yeah, Even though we were just drinking that two years ago with no problem. Yes, exactly. It was fine. <laughs> we were like, yeah, sure. When you're 18, it's fine. <laughs> Not when you're 21. Brewery Omegong, a now famous craft mm. beer brand owned by Belgium's Duvel, was 20 minutes from where I went to college. By my senior year, my friends and I decided to visit Omegong every Saturday for a pregame. <laughs> We sampled the same six beers every week, picked our favorites, and always asked for seconds from our tour guide, a guy we called Scally Cap. We didn't know his real name. Even though we were still binge drinking, it felt more sophisticated. We weren't shotgunning cans. We were sampling two-ounce pours of Belgian Trapels and double-hopped strong ales. I decided that I loved IPAs in the fall of my senior year when a good friend had a Thursday night bartending job at the General Clinton's pub. <laughs> 
He had access to a tap of Red Hook Longhammer IPA. Oh, yeah. That's a classic. It was <laughs> absolutely the greatest thing I'd ever had. And he never charged me. So every Thursday, I'd drain a half dozen Longhammer IPAs in mm. plastic cups, and I just like couldn't believe my luck. I was the luckiest guy <laughs> that on was, earth. That's amazing. Just drinking free Longhammers. <laughs> I thought this was the height of human experience. Free IPAs in just an absolute disgusting bar in upstate New York. What could be better than this? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. There's still nothing better. That's the problem. That is probably true, actually. <laughs> like if you bottled my happiness then versus like the happiest moment now. It's yeah, like, it's well, completely different levels of happiness. It's like, yes, I did get married to an amazing person, but there was. But also there was that like six months. <laughs> I was drinking free long hours. The Clinton's pub. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just so good. <laughs> it's fucked up because you really get so excited about things like that when you're young, and then everything kind of gets muddied as yeah. you get older. <laughs> yeah, there's too much to pick from, yeah. and that was just that was it. That was as yeah. good as I got. Craft beer's influence as a market force and a personal source of pleasure only grew from 2009 to 2013. This segs nicely into my own personal journey with craft beer. So after graduation, I moved to Korea, and I really missed American craft beer. That was one of the things that I thought about a lot while I lived in Korea. I complained about the lack of beer options there. <laughs> and although this didn't stop me from drinking more height and cast lager than any human could reasonably <laughs> consume, I was really excited to return to the world of intense, hoppy, bitter options when I came back home. I went to brew fests in Boston and New Haven, and I toured breweries throughout New England and New York. Until I moved to Laos in 2013, I briefly considered becoming a professional brewer until I realized that the wages and schedules didn't vibe with my I don't like working at all <laughs> mentality. <laughs> it's like, oh, they actually do a lot. I can't. That's actually a hard job. Yeah, it's not an nah. easy job. I just thought that you were Crossed like scally cap, just drunk all the time. At brewery. Oh, <laughs> I wish gang. that was the way. That's Unfortunately, fun. no. There's so many jobs that I was like, oh, I would do that. And then you find out the real thing and you're like, yeah. oh, no. No, not I good. I can't do it. Not good at all. <laughs> it sucks. Do it. But there was a time I was like, all right, I know when I get back from Korea, I'm going to be a brewer. Yeah, that's that's what I'm going to do. So after a year of cold, light, beer lao lagers and mien chen, <laughs> I could not stomach the IPAs of my youth. I didn't want hops or syrup or bitterness. I wanted to enjoy what I drank <laughs> rather than test my resolve. Why did we have all the same experience? <laughs> yeah, I know, it's so Except funny. for me, like it wasn't just like I, I went to another country and I couldn't get it. It was like... All of a sudden, I took a sip of one, and I was like, I can't stand this anymore. Yeah, it's not good. I'm I, done. It's done. Like, <laughs> shortly after my return, I fell out of love with the, like, too much-ishness mm -hmm. of IPAs. I didn't want to bomb my palate. And now, when I drink a beer, I just kind of want to enjoy it. I want a cold, refreshing treat. <laughs> like, I, I will still have a stout or a sour, but... As much as I try to drink uniformly local beers, my beer nerd days are, are, yeah, are gone. Same. They, they have faded tremendously. Same. I wouldn't consider myself anymore a beer guy because I just feel so removed from this the beer culture. I no longer go on Beer Advocate daily <laughs> um, to check out like, oh, top West Coast style IPAs. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not my life anymore. 
But it was my life for a time, yeah. and so I feel that you and I are both qualified to discuss yeah, we definitely the craft beer this. boom of this time period and how it relates to our lives specifically, and how it's actually an interesting story about capitalism. Um, isn't it? Isn't it all? Isn't it all? <laughs> but brother, before we go, what was your craft beer go-to? A couple go-to craft Ooh. beers of your early twenties. Shipyard was a big one. Yep, Shipyard, Portland, um, Maine zone. Dogfish Head. Yeah. Big one. Anything Dogfish Head. Yeah, anything Dogfish Head. I mean, I was like in it. Dogfish Head sequence hits. Well, it's, yeah, that, well, their great. sour is amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the sequence. Their sour is, is amazing. Is Still, those are two big ones for me. Yeah. There wasn't like a. Actually, as is South Florida tradition, mm-hmm. there wasn't a huge craft beer boom down here until like six years yeah. after it ended everywhere it's true, else. yes yeah. yeah like south florida's like did you hear about this craft beer so, thing yeah. it's like just now happening yeah so like for me there wasn't a place to go necessarily now there are like we go to invasive species yeah shout out invasive and we mostly just get sours there now yeah they have i haven't sours. ordered really anything else off the menu no except for that yeah <laughs> they're really talented in that arena but yeah, that Dogfish Head and Shipyard were like my two biggest ones for sure. Yeah, I mean those were of the time. Yeah, like really important beers. Yeah. Like, when I started working at Whole Foods, then I would go. Then we would just like pick up random ones. You yeah, because we were your, at Whole Foods. Do your version of Searsucker yeah. Beer. Yeah, or sorry, not when I started working at Whole Foods, I was already working there. But when I turned twenty-one and was able to buy there, that's when we start. We would pick like random ones. Yeah, it was a really fun time period. Yeah, because. For people who had just turned 21, you didn't know all the styles. No, like, you didn't. At this you point were, like, in our learning. lives, we've had every style. Yeah. So you'd be like, oh, what is this? An English brown ale. Like, this <laughs> yeah. is exciting. And now it's like, all right, I know the two kinds of beer that I like. Yeah. <laughs> I guess three, maybe. And I don't want the other I don't ones. want the other ones. I don't want to try this I mean, thing. I guess that's what happens with growing up, though. You, like, get access to the secret world, and then you take advantage of it a little too much, and you get tired of it. Yeah. And you're like, ugh, never mind. Yeah, that's what we Just did. Just bring me back to the regular shit. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about this. Let's talk about Let's craft talk beer. About Let's it. talk about the craft beer boom of, of the era. I'm pretty excited to talk about it. Unfortunately, part two is called How a Good Thing Became an Increasingly <laughs> Lame thre- Thing Through the Power of Corporate Acquisitions. Yeah. There's no other way for me. It's not Oops. a catchy title. It's not going to be on a shirt. Although it could be. No. Not a great shirt, yeah. though. <laughs> Actually, that'd be a sick shirt. Yeah, because it would be shirt. so niche. Yeah, it would be like a corporate <laughs> flowchart image or something. All right. The craft beer industry, at its heart, is a wonderful thing. Just because I'm no longer accept- obsessed with craft beer doesn't mean I don't love what it originally represented and still represents in certain places. Craft beer began as a labor of love in a stale corporate marketplace. Craft brewers devoted their time, effort, and money to creating a product that they loved and that they hoped other people would love. They saw the state of American beer as pathetic and sought to replicate the pre-prohibition American beer scene, which is something that I learned a lot about when I was becoming a craft beer head. There were like statistics that you could pull out. A commonly cited statistic that all beer nerds had to know, and probably still, is that the American beer industry consisted of over 4,000 breweries in 1873. By 1915, that number had shrunk to 1,300. But after Prohibition, there were only 100 operating breweries in the entire Mm -hmm. country. Per capita, that 4,000 figure is still staggering. It should be noted that people were massive drunks back then. (laughs) More than we could possibly imagine. 
<laughs> like the drinking pre-prohibition is like you're like okay maybe you guys should yeah, have done maybe prohibition. You, yeah it was good everybody needed a little break we needed a break from that <laughs> i'm not here for any carcerality but maybe everybody yeah. just needed a break i mean it didn't stop people from drinking no they still did it was a good cultural reset maybe. <laughs> maybe we need like another one but for yeah. something else yeah like a prohibition on work pro <laughs> A prohibition on work and government. Yeah, let's just take no more. <laughs> pump the brakes for ten everybody, years and then we can bring it back. Everybody, chill out. Bring back craft government. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <laughs> anyway, even though people were massive drunks, the breweries served a vital purpose in creating community gathering places and serving, of course, as engines of local economies. Craft brewers of the 90s and 2000s wanted to bring back this golden age of local beer. And by 2009, which was the beginning of, you know, our craft beer journey, there were 1,600 craft breweries operating in the U.S. Nowhere near the 1873 figure, but representative of a significant increase from the 90s. Yeah, still pretty high. By 2013, at the crest of my craft beer wave, there were nearly 3,000 craft breweries in the U.S. Whoa! Huge increase, right? Very quick, too. Yeah, because that was like, you know, this is the boom they talked about. The explosion displayed an actual desire in the marketplace. People wanted to visit breweries as community gathering places. They wanted to drink interesting and, like, good beer Mm -hmm. for once. And they wanted to be proud of local products. Local breweries, I mean, they still are really Mm -hmm. important things as far as, like, you know, eat and drink local mentalities. Yeah. Like, Unless they were bought by... Well, we're going to talk Budweiser all about that, brother. Because <laughs> there's, there's one down here oh, that was. so much to talk about. <laughs> of course, folks, capitalism does not work that way. It eats itself, to reference the Ouroboros yes. once again. Uh, <laughs> capitalism is the Ouroboros of economic systems <laughs> because it's undefeated in making all the cool stuff much less cool very quickly. Yes, it sucks. <laughs> So when corporations with godlike purchasing power notice a trend, they capitalize. That's mm-hmm. the point of capitalism. <laughs> Those with capital are allowed to consolidate power. That's They're what they do. To do what they want. <laughs> <laughs> Something's not right. I think it's important for us to define craft beer a little bit before we get into this. So what is craft beer exactly? It is defined by the Brewers Association as small, meaning producing 6 million barrels of beer per year or less, independent, meaning less than 25% owned by a larger alcohol company that isn't a craft brewery, and traditional, meaning beers are made with traditional Mm. or innovative brewing ingredients and their fermentation, as opposed to just flavored malt beverages, which is something that you can also get in a lot of places. (laughs) Above all, a craft brewery is mostly defined by its independence, okay? Oh, I got it. I hear you. However, (laughs) as the number of craft breweries rose, we are up to over 9,000 now. As of 2023, so too did acquisitions of these breweries by corporate entities, including fucking like hedge funds and shit, which is so (laughs) lame. In the 2000s, we could realistically assume that the craft beer we loved was independently owned and operated. Realistically assume. Might not have been the case, but you could bet like, all right, this is your independent local craft beer place. Now it's really hit or miss. It's just as likely that your favorite independent, in quote, beer is owned by Miller Coors or Anheuser-Busch InBev than the cool bearded guy that you met in the tasting room (laughs) who's like, yeah, I'm the brewer here. Like, that guy is like, he's 
that owned guy. by the corporation now. <laughs> that guy? <laughs> and I like that guy. That guy's cool yeah. or whatever. But it's not his fault, It's not his fault. There's a really interesting timeline of craft beer acquisitions on vinepair.com, mm. which is a company that produces content on drinking culture trends. Hey, it's always nice. fun to find yeah. out what's going on. That's cool that that exists. Yeah. <laughs> It's like the Aperol Spritz is so 2018. Now it's time for the. You guys, if you need any writers, we're here. Yeah. It's like ask. Fine bear. Ask us to drink a bunch of beers and then write about it. The Leinen Kugel Brewing Company was the first of America's mm. independent craft breweries to be acquired by a big company when Miller Brewing bought them in 1988. Wow, that's a long time ago. Yeah. I love their summer shandy. Dude, that was one of my first like. <laughs> 21-year-old craft beer flat so purchases. Good. They had it at the, the corner store, and we would buy it's just like so 18 good. packs of that shit. Yeah. Red Hook Ales, the maker of my once-beloved Long Hammer IPA mm-hmm. of the General Clinton pub days, <laughs> right, was actually something of an Anheuser-Busch property. Whoa. Anheuser-Busch purchased a 25% stake in 1994 in Independent Ale Co., which was the, like, group that yeah, the owned group that them, owned them yeah. which is really funny that independent Alco is actually part of the InBev Anheuser-Busch <laughs> family. <laughs> like, no it's so ridiculous. It no and there's sense. so much more of this. So other notable acquisitions include independent brewers united's capture by North American breweries. Hmm. North American breweries is a subsidiary of KPS capital partners, which purchased independent brewers United <laughs> whose assets included magic hat. Remember magic. Hat? Oh man. Magic hat number nine was yeah. the delicious beer and pyramid. Wow. KPS capital is an investment firm that buys distressed companies. So KPS Capital. So the union was distressed. <laughs> so KPS <laughs> Capital bought the like like this independent. We're like, oh, we're yeah. an independent brewers like collaboration, whatever, and it's owned by a capital firm. That is insane. Yes. Now I did some research on KPS Capital, and apparently they have like kind of a nice rep rep like for like working with unions mm-hmm. and not using debt in their deals. Okay. So like what? Okay, fine. Sure. But, like, still fucking lame, right? But still, fuck you. Yeah, it's still lame. (laughs) But there's many more. There's many more. I can't go through all of them. But Red Hook Ale and Widmer Brothers, both partially owned by Mm Anheuser-Busch, created the Craft Brew Alliance in 2008. In 2010, Kona was folded into the mix. AB InBev now owns more than 30% of Craft Brew Alliance. (laughs) (laughs) So nearly a third of this company... is craft (laughs) beer. Okay, so yeah... (laughs) I just think it's really funny that Craft Brew Alliance is owned by, a big portion of it is owned by Anheuser-Busch yeah. InBev. makes no sense. Goose Island, this was a big yeah, one. Yeah, that was a big one. In 2011, was purchased by AB InBev, and this made like the biggest splash in the industry at the time period. The Craft Brewers Alliance, which was already partially owned by InBev, had a 42% stake in Goose Island at that time, but then there was a complete buyout, <laughs> and that sort of set this tone for future purchases. <laughs> So other major craft brewery acquisitions include Southern Tier. Mm -hmm. Loved that stuff, right? That was a really fun thing for like desserty beers and stuff. Elysian Founders. Yeah, Elysian was great too. Founders, of course, maker of many beers that you've seen in the store, but the legendary Kentucky Breakfast Stout, still one of those like, you know, life-changing beers for me Mm -hmm. at the time. Oscar Blues. Oh, wow. Oscar was bought? Abita. What was that? Lagunitas. 
Dogfish Head, of course, consolidated with um, Boston Beer Co., yeah. Cigar City, Brooklyn Brewery, Victory, Wicked Weed, Anchor, and of course, we got to talk about Broward's own <laughs> Funky Boots. Funky Boots. Actually, it was Boca's own first. Ah, it was well. originally in Boca. Ah, well, so close to but Broward. Now, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so close yet so South far. South Florida's own. Yeah, South Florida's <laughs> own Funky Boots. The Funky Boots. Um, if you're ever in Oakland Park, you know, you can hop over to Funky Boots. They or are. Or go to Invasive Species yes, instead. Yes, it's way better. It's way better. <laughs> All of this is to say that many of your favorite local craft beers are owned by investment firms or the investment wings of corporate breweries and, quote, beverage alliances. <laughs> Why are we so dumb? Okay. I'm not trying to say that this is bad necessarily because it isn't a uniform thing. Many acquisitions are just market shares and might not affect the brewing at all. Some could argue, I'm not, that these acquisitions are better because they increase distribution and funding, which ultimately expands operations and allows more people to try the flavors of far-off lands. But that really takes something away from yes, the whole experience. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's more of a labeling thing, right? What drew many people, including me and probably you, to craft beer in the early boom wasn't just better beer, although that was very significant. We wanted to drink something that was good. But it was also this promise of drinking local and supporting homegrown industry. Yeah. Even if it wasn't your we're local the, beer. But you knew it was coming yeah. from a, a small place. Yeah, you're like, oh, this is from like North Carolina's like little brewery there. Yeah. That's fun. It was just like this grassroots effort that you could like kind of feel better about drinking local, yeah. even yeah. though that's... Well, when we got Highlight, then it was like the game changed. Yeah. Because we we're like, oh, this is actually like we're supporting Florida yes. people. Yeah, you know? of course. Yeah, then you start drinking yeah. that. I mean, Funky Buddha, Floridian. Yeah. You know, that was... Yeah, it was still a is deal. a big thing. Yeah. yeah. Like if I owned a brewery and some big wigs bought me out, I'm sure that I'd be stoked. Listen, I'm ready to sell out, <laughs> folks. We're both ready to sell out so hard. <laughs> if you want to buy Fat Guy Jack <laughs> LLC for like $2 million, take it. We... <laughs> <laughs> Please. <laughs> We're so tired. Yeah. <laughs> I would never blame the little guy for cashing in their chips and getting out of the game. However, can anything ever be local again? Mm -hmm. Is that even possible? It's no surprise that local breweries and their investors don't advertise acquisitions because they kill the vibe. Right, it does. That's a real... <laughs> I don't want to go there anymore. Yes. I haven't been to Funky Buddha in like nine years. It's so funny you mention that because in my notes I say, <laughs> when you know that Funky Buddha is less funky <laughs> and more of an investment opportunity that strengthens the portfolio of some fund, it kind of hurts the flavor yeah. of the beer. Yeah. I don't want to go there anymore. You aren't sticking up for the little guy anymore. You're not choosing the artisan over the corporate investor. And that kind of blows if you're a person that liked the idea of craft beer just yeah. as much as the beer itself. Like the mission yeah, of Yeah, and not in local. a snobby way either. Just in a way of like, these are people who are dedicated to their f fucking craft. And that's like such a cool thing. Yeah. We should be celebrating that in our society instead yeah. of trying to crush it. Every single second. I totally agree. It is nothing to do with snobbishness. No. Obviously, we avoid that at all costs. <laughs> we unfortunately have a lot of like scumbag tendencies. <laughs> we have a lot of scumbag <laughs> tendencies. <laughs> and that is not something we can ignore. No. But that's also a strengthening argument here that like this isn't because I wanted to be like Mr. Fancy Pants, yeah. especially not now. Like I'm way beyond that. No. Maybe not as at all. a 21 year old is like probably a dick, but like now it's just. 
can't anything just be the local yeah. thing? Can we just enjoy it being small and profitable and fun yeah. and like that's it? Yeah. It it blows because it takes the wind out of the sails of what craft beer is supposed to be. This doesn't mean that every craft beer is a corporate acquisition. No. There's still There's many that are, that are not. But I think it's really interesting that Funky Buddha, for instance, my parents visited a few weeks ago and we went to Funky Buddha because we were in the neighborhood and my dad was like, I was trying to find like the news about the corporate acquisition online and you cannot find anything about it. Wow. Like it is. I feel like it's was like, it like in, scrubbed because I feel like that was a big deal. It, it, it was happened. like a big deal. Like we knew about yeah. it and it was sort of a thing, huh. like whis- whispery sort of thing because it happened since I've lived here. Yeah. But um, they don't want to talk about it because you do want this to be your local place. Yeah, you want it to be your local place. Well, I do remember them being whispery about it. Mm -hmm. But then there was that giant billboard that was on 95 for a while that was like, (laughs) Funky Buddha now available nationally. Oh, yeah, but they don't want you to know why. (laughs) I'm like, I was supposed to guess that this little brewery was like just doing this by themselves? No, I knew immediately. I was like, oh, okay, that confirms it. Yeah. You guys did sell. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which, like, yeah. all right, man, whatever, dude. Yeah, I'm do what not, you got to do. But... You. Just kind of sucks. Now that we've talked a little bit about corporate acquisitions and how that <laughs> makes the taste of craft beer a little <laughs> bit less delicious, I want to talk about the least delicious of craft beer offerings mm. in America. So, part three do is called Peak IPA <laughs> and American Absurdism. I do not like IPAs anymore. Me neither. Almost uniformly. Gotta go on record as saying, sorry, folks. It's nasty. My friend Noah (laughs) posits that this realization came at my 22nd birthday, or at least it did for him, when we recklessly drank sake bombs with Harpoon IPA as the base. Yeah, it's disgusting. You guys were sickos. (laughs) We were sick. We were freaks. (laughs) I didn't seem to mind it at the time. Noah, however, quit IPAs at that exact moment. Yeah, I feel him. I feel you, Noah. He has not looked back. (laughs) It took me years to arrive at this same conclusion that the American IPA had gone too far. If you're unfamiliar with methods of brewing beer, <laughs> IPA yes, or please explain to the people what India pale. pale Ale is a style of beer categorized by hoppiness, whether it's citrusy, fruity, or so bitter you want to um, go to Top Shadas. Broward's own top shot. We should put citrusy and fruity in quotes. Yes, because those are also backed by bitter. It's not really that. Yeah. (laughs) It's not refreshing. Hops are the flowers of the hop plant that are used to add bitterness and flavor and to stabilize beer. The story of IPA is that British brewers in the late 18th century, notably George Hodgson's Bow Brewery of Middlesex, Essex, Mm. made pale ales which were intended to be cellared for two years after brewing. These beers were exported to India by the British East India Company, and the voyage overseas made the beer taste better. Throughout the 1800s, other British brewers utilized the India Pale Ale style, and it soon was exported to continental Europe. By the 1860s, India Pale Ale was widely brewed in England, and it also adopted the higher alcoholic content that we know today. <laughs> the IPA, however, did not make waves in the U.S. until the craft beer boom of the past, you know, 25, 30 years mm-hmm. or so. Ballantine IPA, founded oh, in yeah. New Jersey, began producing the first widely popular American IPA in 1890. Wow. Isn't that wild? Um, I forgot that they even existed. Yeah, I know. But they're still around. I, I used think to drink they are some still of those. around, yeah. yeah. Burt Grant of Yakima Brewing Company in Washington State realized that Washington's local Cascade and Chinook hops were made IPAs taste even better. 
And that style spread from the West Coast to the East Coast. This is your West Coast IPA. Mm -hmm. And now it is estimated that 40% of craft beers brewed in the U.S. are IPA varieties of some kind. Who are you sickos that are drinking this much IPA? Guys, that's enough. That's fucked up. As all things American, we got real big and intense about this whole IPA <laughs> thing. Americans took the concept for a walk and invented a whole bunch of IPA sequels. Is the word that I'm using. <laughs> sequels. sequels instead of styles. Yeah, I like yeah, that. Yeah, sequels. <laughs> sequels. It's like IPA They're part I- three. I- IPA three. <laughs> this shit really sucks. <laughs> this one really sucks. <laughs> You thought that last IPA you drank <laughs> no, was like no, a little wrong. bit too much? You thought IPA 2 was bad? Wait till you hit IPA this 3. This shit's going to suck. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I broke down some of the notable American takes okay. on the IPA. You have your black IPA. Yep. It's darker, maltier, as the name suggests. It is blacker in color. Mm-hmm. Greg Noonan of Vermont Pub and Brewery created the first black IPA for sale on draft only in the pub in the early 1990s, but this style did not come popu- become popular until like about 2009, which okay. is, you know, yeah. when we were 21, Yeah, which is wild. You have your Brut IPA. Mm-hmm. That's B-R-U-T. <laughs> it's a crisp, dry IPA. It was invented by Kim Sturdivant, who's head brewer at San Francisco's Social Kitchen and Brewery. To make brewed IPA, brewers use an enzyme to remove the sugars, so it's like that dry, whiny quality that a brewed IPA has. You have, you know, arguably the worst invention (laughs) ever, the double (laughs) IPA, okay? And its brother, the triple. Yes, which is like, (laughs) just shut up, okay? Americans, you don't have to make everything double. No, you don't need (laughs) multiples. You don't have to do that. It's bad enough. So double IPAs are a stronger, hoppier variant of IPAs that typically have alcohol content above 7.5%. So as a college student, this was very um, yeah. intriguing because well, it had more alcohol yeah. and yeah. you'd be an idiot and you'd be like, oh, this is actually like three beers in one beer. Yeah. And it's like, that's not what you should be drinking you for. Drink, <laughs> you drink a double IPA when you really want to punish yourself. <laughs> yeah, this is you great. You did something bad and you're like, fuck yourself. So we know who did this. Okay. This style was originated <laughs> with a guy named Vinny Salerzo. My paisan? Yeah, the paisan did That's this, okay? Up. He's currently the owner of Russian River Brewing Company oh, in yeah. Santa Rosa, California. We have the New England IPA, which is the mm-hmm. beer of my people. Yeah. Okay. New England IPAs are quite popular now. I only know this because my family, a bunch of New Englanders, really likes New England IPAs. Mm. I don't know what their problem is. It was invented Sickers. in 2004 at the Alchemist Brewery in Waterbury, Vermont. It's a hazier, juicier, citrusy, floral kind of IPA. Mm, So they say. Yeah. The emphasis is on the hop aroma rather than the bitterness (laughs) of the beer itself. So New England IPAs are less bitter yeah. flavor wise and they are they are a little bit better. Their their mouthfeel is interesting, they're smoother, whatever. They don't need to be brewed in New England. This is a mm-hmm. style that it's is popular the around the country. Yeah. New England IPAs have also been made into the milkshake IPA, mm-hmm. which adds lactose and occasionally fruit to make it more creamy. So it's like, hey, you know how you like those like sours that yeah. are fruity and nice? 
Here's I added something that'll that make it suck. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want one that sucks? You know how we made this really great beer and then we put other shit in it to make it suck? <laughs> Do you want one that <laughs> really <you> blows? <laughs> <laughs> you have, as you mentioned, triple IPA. Mm-hmm. What can we say about triple IPAs? What you don't like, like about double IPAs, <laughs> there's more of it. <laughs> Drinking a triple IPA is like eating an asteroid. Yeah. Um, it has alcohol content usually over 10%. Yeah. So super high alcohol, higher hop flavors. Essentially, you're drinking like syrup that's bitter. Mm-hmm. So if you like medicine, <laughs> when you were a little kid and you, you know, liked like the, the medicine. the nastiest medicine you can imagine. <laughs> it's Me- like Medicine that. that has like cigarette ash in it. <laughs> that's what it tastes like. Remember when your drunk grandma ashed your cigarette into the medicine before she gave it to you? That's the flavor we're trying to recreate with our triple IPA. That's the ad for it. (laughs) You have your West Coast IPA, which I mentioned earlier. Low in malt content, clear focus on the hops. They really love their hops up there. So, you know, this is for all the freaks from Washington and Oregon, you know, whatever. You have your white IPA, whatever. It's white. I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) the proliferation of IPAs to me sort of highlights the absurdity of Americanism itself. Chiefly our propensity to overdo everything. That's what being American really is, ultimately. Just as we have the ability to be intelligent and compassionate and innovative and unique, we're also loud and wasteful (laughs) and tasteless. (laughs) So true. For every intriguing and balanced IPA that could exist, I don't know anymore, there were at least 10 palate-destroying abominations of Mm -hmm. IPAs. And once you've had one troubling IPA experience, your tolerance for aggressive (laughs) hoppiness deteriorates to a point where it cannot be rectified, right? It's so true. (laughs) I'm I'm done. It's so true. You're just like, ugh. Like, no, I don't want that. You're like, why would they focus more on the hops and not the malts? Yeah, I don't know. The malt's the good part. Why would you focus on the things that are bad? And you pick the thing that sucked thing that's the most good. and highlighted it. I read an article by this guy named Joshua Bernstein in the beverage publication Punch. Mm. Uh, it's a 2016 article about the history of IPAs in America. I do like Punch a lot. They give me great cocktail ideas. It's, it's a nice little beverage nice. Uh, industry publication. Punch, if you heard that, hit Punch, us up. yeah, hit us up. Punch, we like you. <laughs> Bernstein succinctly describes the movement from reasonable IPAs in the late 90s and early 2000s to the overblown garbage of the late aughts and beyond. He says, The IPA gradually became a weapon in craft brewers' battle against conglomerates. (laughs) The mid-1990s welcomed Lagunitas IPA and Stone IPA, symphonies of citrus and pine that solidified the West Coast as a stylistic trailblazer. Sierra Nevada first underscored IPA's seasonality with Harvest Ale in 1996, using freshly picked hops. I really liked Sierra Nevada. Yeah, yeah, Sierra Nevada was was good too. Yeah, still, still is. Greener and more delicate than standard dried hops to create a new fall category. But the IPA wasn't solely a West Coast delicacy. Harpoon IPA, 1993. Mm -hmm. Brooklyn East IPA, 1995. Mm -hmm. Were early reps for the East Coast while Bell's Two-Hearted Ale, Mm -hmm. 93. And Goose IPA, 97. Held it down for the Midwest. Looking back, these early examples seem quaintly restrained. And by that, he means good. They were good. They tasted all right. Yeah, I could handle... All of those that you mentioned, actually. He goes on to say, By the mid-aughts, the IPA began to push international bitterness units, 
IBUs, which is a measure of beer's perceived bitterness, and alcohol even higher. Russian rivers Pliny the Elder in 2000, as resinous as a pine tree and clocking in at 8% APV, (laughs) began the archetypal double IPA. Then came the stronger triple, 10 to 12% in alcohol, and quadruple, 12% and up, expressions that push the very upper limits of flavor and drinkability. (laughs) (laughs) Consuming beers like Stone's Ruination, Green Flash, Palette Wrecker, which like, they just call yeah, it out we right know, there. guys. Dogfish Head 120-minute IPA or McKellar 1000 IBU was equivalent to eating an incendiary Carolina Reaper. <laughs> it was drinking as double dare. And then he has a parenthetical. Today, I don't like IPAs yep. remains a common refrain, largely a hangover from the IPA arms race era. <laughs> Damn, he got us. <laughs> Dude, I mean, he said it like perfectly. <laughs> It was like this American need to take things to the extreme. Whereas in other brewing parts of the world where you have like the German, you know, brewing purity laws, you have like Belgian beer, which is a lot more intense, but still retains this tradition. America is all about like destruction of tradition, which I like, but also can become shitty. Yeah. Which we see. Yeah. When you don't have a tradition, you know, stuff can go wrong. I mean, it's different. It's destruction of... (laughs) It's destruction of tradition simply to make capital. Yes. Because when you have something that is niche and like novel, you're definitely going to make some money off of that. Even if people hate it. Yeah. There are still going to be people who buy that palette record shit Mm -hmm. and drink it with their friends. Yes. As a joke. Yeah. And I think we can extend this even further to, listen... Not everything is about this, but it kind of all is. In places like Belgium and Germany, for instance, where you have these traditions, you also have like pretty significant social welfare. Yes. Uh, So people don't feel the need to like expand and expand and expand. You can be like, we make this really nice lager and we're only going to make this lager. We don't need to worry about expansion so that one day we can be acquired by a conglomerate and some of their beers are significantly lower in alcohol yeah i mean so it it allows you to actually like sit and buy a few yeah without having to call the uber to go home (laughs) (laughs) because you drank too many palate records nice you know we're drinking palate records just nice nice to have that i have a little anecdote here so in college i lived in a two-story apartment with five other dudes including my friends Craig and, as I mentioned already, Noah. Yeah, probably not good. I don't know. I think I lost my sense of smell from all the drinking. (laughs) So Craig and Noah were this oddly paired but wonderful duo. They were opposites in every single way. Noah at some point bought a dog named Apollo who was a rambunctious (laughs) golden doodle, and he bothered Craig all the time, (laughs) at least daily, Apollo would be doing something, and then Craig would just look at Apollo and yell, Stop doing shit! (laughs) And that's how I feel about the American IPA movement. Sometimes you need to stop doing shit. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we don't need more. We have trouble leaving great things as great in this country and in this culture. We want to push it like the toddler testing the boundaries of acceptable social behavior or the underage kid figuring out their alcohol tolerance when they're 15. (laughs) America is that. Where Belgian and German brewers have brewing guidelines that force restraint, Americans subscribe to no such concept, which, as I said before, I love it and I hate it. 
of course we should push boundaries, especially in things that we don't want to push boundaries yeah. in, like politics and like what we accept socially. Social, social security <laughs> yeah. and welfare. Yeah, we should probably push boundaries in those things. Mm -hmm. But we should also recognize, especially when it comes to food and beverage and things that are can be inherently good without pushing it. Some things are just as good as they can be. Yeah. And the craft's elevation is in continuous creation rather than trying to make it bigger and louder and more obnoxious. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> you said it. Right? You said it perfectly. I don't know if I need to say any more, yeah, man. <laughs> Just stop doing Just shit. Just stop doing shit. If you made a really nice, don't like, delicious ale, uh, you know, keep it there. Yeah. You don't have to add more hops. No, you don't. Keep it there. You can make another beer, I guess. Yeah, do another one. That's good. Yeah, that's good, though. <laughs> don't do another IPA. <laughs> don't do any IPAs. There's nothing worse than walking into, like, a, a cool, fun brewery and you're like, ah, oh, and then they have, like, 17 IPAs. I'm not going to name it by name, but there is a brewery <laughs> in South Florida that is like that. Just all IPAs. It's just, like, all IPAs and two lagers. Yeah. And it's like, I'm never going to drink there. Yeah, because you don't want to IPA it. And I don't want to pay eight bucks for a lager either. Yeah, that's fair. You know? That's fair. I can just go to the ones that I actually like. you got to look out for you, brother. i got to look out for me, brother. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be going to this IPA place just because you feel sorry for me. <laughs> I can't just go to this IPA place. Okay, folks. No. Yeah. I mean, it's fine if, if people like IPAs. I'm not saying you're like I mean, wrong for that. Clearly it's a taste thing, but a it's lot just of people like... do based on the market share. Like 40% is more than any other style. Yeah. So, but I do wonder people like they, them. I guess since like I don't know if we were really enjoying them back then. IPAs. Yeah. I mean, so I, think I wonder how people are actually enjoying them now, or if they just drink them for. I think I know some people who drink them for, like, the higher alcohol content, which, which is I respect, like, I guess. I, I respect it, but also, like, we're adults now. Yeah. And also, you could buy, like, more. <laughs> yeah. You could buy more of the good one. If you just want to get drunk, just drink buy alcohol. more of I don't the know. good one. <laughs> Sometimes, I don't, I don't know. Sometimes, I don't know. Could be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I, like, I think that, that that's probably a motivator. I think also... You know, some people do have palates that can handle more bitter things. Sure. And mine and so that did at sense. a point. Yeah, Our mine taste did at a point. Change. It's, it, it's it, I think it was fun to discover, and I think many mm -hmm. people are at different places in where they are yeah. with craft beer, and so they're discovering their limits yeah, totally. in terms of bitterness or whatever. It's interesting because I, I, I do like bitter foods. Yeah. There are some bitter foods that I really like. I enjoy but, bitterness. But IPAs nowadays hit me in the same place. There's like a part of my palate that arugula and grapefruit hit. Mm -hmm. And I just can't stand it. Like I can't have it in my mouth anymore. <laughs> and that's how we're, that's the same place IPAs hit now. Yeah, that's fair. And obviously that changed over time because I liked both of those things at one time too. So it's just something in, in our, my like hormonal changes. But just really funny that like I, I can't like even drink it. Unless it's one of those lighter ones. Yeah. Like, I can do Sierra Nevada. This is awkward because I brought you an arugula grapefruit IPA Holy to drink. Holy shit. Know, no way, I brother. <laughs> it really sucks. I can't drink that. <laughs> Our IPA is brewed with the worst fresh arugula. <laughs> the worst. Our IPA yeah. actually just tastes like fertilizer. <laughs> like, like sour fertilizer. Sucks. Just we should make an IPA just called like this shit sucks. 
That's a good actually yeah, that's a pretty good one. idea. Yeah, people would buy people it. People would yes. And there would be people that like it. Yeah, like, totally. Actually, it's pretty good. Yeah. No, but you're right. It is representative of just our need to constantly expand and everybody's like, oh, okay, I made this one really good IPA, so I'm gonna make six more that I think people will like. Yeah. And it's like, no, they probably won't. Mm-hmm. It's true. The original one's probably going to sell the most, no matter what. Yeah, they have, like, their flagship beers that yeah. people like. And that is also part of getting older and maturing, and maybe as a country we'll get there if we don't <laughs> completely fall apart. But there are places where quiet is appreciated yes. and restraint is appreciated. Yeah. We are not one of those places. And that infects every part of our lives, including the beer that we drink, including the food that we eat. Like, yep. everything has to be loud and over the top. And there's a charm to that, and there's a place for that, but it's not all the time. No. We have to get to a place we where we can do appreciate that every restraint. Day. No, you can't do it every day. Well, you can wanna, for a few years, I It guess. takes <laughs> the fun out of it. Like, yeah. don't you want to go back to something you miss? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you can't always be expanding, but yeah. that is the nature of capitalism. Yeah. Part four is how is this representative of the time period and now? Yeah, of course. We are still technically in the midst of the craft beer boom, according to data. In 2022, retail dollar sales of craft increased 5% to $28.4 billion and now account for 24% of the $115 billion US beer market. Wow. The growth in the beer sector has been at the local level, even though beer sales are down overall. Young people, for instance, do not drink as much beer as we did at all. What are they drinking? There are other canned, yeah, they're they're the options like canned cocktails and seltzer, but also just generally young people drink less alcohol than we did, which I'm not going to say is a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. (laughs) I think that's fine. They got to be doing more drugs though. (laughs) Yeah, they're probably vaping more or something. (laughs) They're doing stuff that like kids do, but it's not drinking as much, which is good. It's much more safe that way. You should not be drinking if you're a kid. So even though this is not a fad, we could never call craft beer a fad now that it has established itself like firmly. Right. 25% of all beer sales are craft, although... It's a big portion of That the does include like acquired products and yeah, things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. So how much of that is actually local? I don't know. We cannot view this as like the same every other fad, like this shiny new thing and then it disappeared. It's yeah. still here. It became mainstream in the late aughts. And I think that this is ultimately a good thing, although there's a lot of lameness that comes with it. As I mentioned before, corporate acquisitions uh, now define the craft beer industry in the same way that other industries are also defined by corporate acquisition. Tech startups now are never created with the intention of making a dope company. They're built so that a big company will buy them and then figure it out later. (laughs) And I wonder if that's the future of craft beer. As capitalism consolidates further, will it devour the goodness of like every local craft brewery? Will everything just be another corporate acquisition like tech companies? Like, what does a tech company make? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Google's going to buy them. Yeah, true. <laughs> God, I hope not, though. I hope not. I mean, I think that there's something... Now, I don't want anybody coming for me because I'm talking about like technology. But I, I do think there's something different about working with technology and like working with actual things yes agreed totally you know what i'm saying totally like when you're working with actual ingredients you're working with actual materials there's something different there i'm not saying that the amount of love in the product that you create is different but 
the intention is a lot different. Yeah. And so I think there's still going to be those guys that are hanging on. Yeah. And guys gender neutral, by the way. Yeah, there's yeah. Women too. Yeah, a lot of great female and, craft brewers. And like, sure. trans and non-binary people. Sure. You know, I think that there's going to be a lot of people that are like hanging on to the idea of like being this artisan. Yeah. Like we haven't completely lost that in our culture. No, it's still it's very just so important. hard to do it. Yes. It's incredibly hard and you have to have capital and that's yeah. where everything gets tied up into that. Yeah. Starting a craft brewery is an incredibly right. capital be, intensive process. The artisans are gonna be limited in like who they are, yeah. identity wise, for sure. Yeah. But I think there's still gonna be people who are willing to like take the risk and just keep doing the little guy thing, you know? Yeah. I, I think that the bigger issue is that American capital takes the cool things that artists do yeah, and that is makes the them issue. lame yeah. merely by acquisition. Yeah. Even if the product doesn't change at all, which like I could argue that for instance Funky Buddha, which we meant like the product does seem different. Is that it's just a lot mental? Different. No, it's a lot different. The quality is way different. Yeah. It doesn't seem the same. No, it's not. And that probably is like, oh, we got these ingredients from this place instead of from this place and it and affects the quality and it also yeah, you're producing so much that you have to like yeah the quality control is different yeah it's a corporate quality control which ultimately means that you know you're producing for the masses as opposed yeah. to producing for uh, oakland park <laughs> and when you know whatever Broward. Yeah. over the past several years there's been an interesting trend that i've noticed and i looked up this is happening this it's real it's not in my brain yeah of macro lager appreciation. Oh yeah. Right? That's not yeah, this is real. This is this is bad. I see it for us. <laughs> yeah. I mean true. It's true. There's articles about like sommeliers and famous chefs discussing why macro beer is oh, actually yeah. really totally. good. You can think of the eminently consumable Miller High Life, mm-hmm. Tecate, Narragansett's my favorite. Yeah. You know. I like Narragansett too. And Genesee but you can't Cream really Ales. Get it, so I do Miller High Life. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to get against it around yeah. here. And I think this is in part the obvious backlash to the craft beer movement. People with refined palates probably just want simple refreshment mm-hmm. from a beer rather than this battle for flavor <laughs> that comes with like some of these really aggressive beer tasting experiences. For every cultural moment and its accompanying market saturation, there is a movement against it. I'm not saying that I'm like on the side of macro appreciation against craft beer, but I understand why it exists. And I certainly have enjoyed some of these like corporate beers a lot more (laughs) as I've gotten older, just because you gotta do what you like at some point. Also, what are you gonna do? Bring a fucking dogfish head 120 minute IPA (laughs) to the beach? (laughs) Yeah, it's ridiculous. I'm never gonna do that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's wild, and there are budget concerns, and there has to be a middle ground. Really. Yeah, okay, there definitely does. I'm going to enjoy a Tecate yeah. because it's a nice, light, it's refreshing delicious. treat, and I can put a little lime wedge in mm-hmm. it, and, and I'm in South Florida, and it's hot, yeah. okay? Yeah. I, I don't have to have an IPA today. <laughs> and listen, you're picking Tecate over Corona. Yeah. So, yeah. Probably not much of a difference, no, 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 but kind of no. But I'm choosing that way. Yeah, I know. Yeah. In my brain, it, it does. Yeah. <laughs> For me, it does. <laughs> Every time I pick a Tecate, it's a girl. The little like, guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm choosing this the little guy. They're probably owned by like the same Dos company. Equis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, it's, this is a littler guy. And I know that there are probably beer people listening 
who have a lot to say about what I've said. Probably. And I think that's totally fine. I am in no way saying that craft beer is bad. I am just merely speaking from personal experience about my relationship to craft beer and the ways in which, like many things, it with market saturation becomes a lot less desirable. Absolutely. I don't know if that's like a hipster tendency, like a need to rebel, or if it's just because your palate changes and your needs change and your desires yeah. change. And in fact, everybody's has. I think, again, you're, as you're pointing out, you've pointed out several times, you get older and you're like, I am not going to be apologetic about the shit I like anymore. Yeah, you can't. And that's just kind of what it is. And a lot of times the shit you like is not the weird shit. No. No offense to anybody. We all have like our weird tendencies. But a lot of times the shit you really, really like, it's not the weird shit. Yeah. And like, that's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. Sometimes things are made in a way that is good. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. Like, you like McDonald's french fries. Like, don't pretend that you yeah, don't. don't they taste good. Yeah, everybody likes them. <laughs> <laughs> like, everybody There's likes them. There's a reason they were engineered <laughs> to taste yeah, good. Yeah, exactly. A Krispy Kreme donut. Everybody likes yeah. a Krispy Kreme donut. They literally use nanotechnology yeah. to make them. <laughs> when I have a Krispy Kreme donut, the only thing I can think is, like, you stupid engineers. That's, I do, too. You I, got me I, again. No, I actually do think yeah, that. Because I'm like, ah, oh, fuck you. It pisses me off. <laughs> It really pisses me off. This tastes so goddamn good. <laughs> it sucks. Fuck you. But, no, I, but it's true. Yeah. So this like time period when craft beer became really big in our lives and actually in the country's lives, like there is that convergence where that the big part of the craft beer boom occurred when we were coming into legal drinking age. Mm-hmm. And so it affected our relationship with beer, what I think beer is. Yeah. And I would not even consider drinking a Bud Light in a situation. Not because I think I'm better than a Bud Light, yeah. or and I know there's like a whole other thing with Bud Light happening now, but like, which is like, I don't fucking care. Yo, it's Bud ridiculous. Light Lime fucks. I don't care what anybody says. Bud Light Lime is good. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, at a bar, I will probably look for the good local option. Yeah, same. And I, I credit craft beer with making that even a thing in my brain. Yeah, totally. And totally. that's exciting and cool, and we should always consider what local options there are. It's not like a radical thing to say that the stuff that is closer to where it's made is probably going to be better. I totally agree with that because I, I do the same thing. Yeah, why not? If they got Cigar City on the menu or something, I'm going to get it. Yeah, give me a yeah, taste of the local flavor. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm in, uh, you know, whatever, Tennessee, I'm going to be like, what are yeah. you guys brewing around here? Absolutely. And I just, you know, one thing I do want to point out too because we're talking about like hipster tendencies as well is like the craft beer room coincided with something we've also already partially talked about on this podcast, which is the rise of the hipster. Yes. Sure. And, our, and like it becoming, and then it subsequently becoming ma- a mainstream situation as well. So they kind of have followed the same trajectory together. Yeah. In a weird way, and part of being a hipster was also like being interested in craft beer. Mm-hmm. You know, and so once all of that became main- mainstream, it felt a lot less unique. Yeah, you're not <laughs> on the vanguard anymore. You know, like you're not on the cutting edge anymore. And also, like, that's okay. Mm-hmm. I just want to point out, put it out, like, you do not need to be in the vanguard or, like, on cu- the cutting edge. Yeah, and that's another part of and, hipsterism, too, yeah. is then there was the macro appreciation of totally, hipsterism. Totally, yeah, totally. Where you had, like, paps, paps and their Yeah, and exactly. Shit. Sure. And I just think, like, also, you know, what are we get? what are we, when we are on the cutting edge, we're also giving something up, which is, like, money and time. Yeah. That we have, <laughs> like, money specifically. Oftentimes, to be on the cutting edge, you have to spend a lot of fucking money. Yeah. 
And like, you don't have, nobody has to do that. You can just be a person. A person. <laughs> yeah. You're allowed to be a person. You can just be a person and spend less money. It's yep. good. Anyway, that's it. That's my craft beer thing. That's great, brother. I mean, I learned some things I did not know, actually. Yeah, there's so. so much to talk about, but this is it. This is an this hour. This is our primer. This is it, guys. Yeah, and I think that's great. Now, go out there and do something. Go out there and, you know, have a brew. <laughs> yeah, have a brew. Or don't. Have a seltzer. Yeah. Or a Diet Coke. Nice. Or a Coke Zero. A Coke Zero. How about a nice cup of coffee? A cup of coffee? Um, All of these what things are, other are beverages? great options. <laughs> Still water. How about yeah, a nice water. cold glass of water? That's good. It really is good. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Right.